This is the crude tanker panel, um, which I'm looking forward to moderating. Uh, we've had uh, one of the panelists uh, slightly delayed in traffic, so he might show up along the way. Um, but I do think we'll just start off uh, straight away. Um, and with that, I'd like to introduce, uh, introduce our panelists. So, so all the way on the end, uh, we have Harris Cosmatos with um, uh, the Corporate Development Officer at uh, Tsarkos Energy Navigation. Glad to have you here. Um, beside him, we have Ms. Lois Zabrocki, uh, the CEO of International Seaways. Um, and we have Mr. Robert Burke, uh, Partner and CEO at Ridgebury Tankers, joining us today. So no secret, I think uh, uh, the tanker sector has definitely benefited a lot recently and uh, the question is just uh, how long is this going to last and where are we going to end up and I hope that's uh, some of the things that we'll touch on uh, during this uh, debate uh, or panel. Um, and I thought I'd just start off setting the stage uh, as, or allowing you to set the stage as to where we are um, and what has happened so far, trying to explain um, what the drivers behind the vastly improved tanker market have been over the past few months. And if, um, if you want to go ahead and, and start that, uh, Robert. What have been the drivers? The main drivers for the recent development in, in the market and how and where we are today, yeah. Um, I think we spent the past year or so describing how the market's tightening, the order book's getting smaller, the yards are closed to tanker orders. Uh, demand is going up from pre-COVID levels, and we're getting to a point where things will be good, all of which was true. Um, and then the war hit, and things got, uh, you know, tight very, very quickly, um, more than any of us expected. I, I think the underlying uh, dynamic was already there, and we'd probably already be in a, in a we probably would already be in a decent place, but, you know, the war has um, supercharged things. It's, it's like um, a friend of mine used to say when I was younger, you know, in the ocean, if you're surfing or body surfing, you can, you know, the, the first wave you can withstand. It's not a big change, but it's the cleanup wave that really knocks you on your feet. And I think that's, uh, that's what happened to this market. You know, the, the first wave of the market tightening didn't really affect us that much, but the, uh, the war certainly changed the trading patterns and uh, helped us achieve results that you've all heard about today on the, on the clean panel earlier. It's the same, same sort of event. So the, um, the clean tankers and the product tankers, they started this, uh, this fund. Uh, if you look at how the rates developed before it spilled over to the larger ones. And, and Lois, um, uh, how, how much of these uh, disruptions? Well, they, they think they started it, but we gave them, we gave them a head start. So. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, even better. Uh, then we know what to expect, I guess, <laughs> after the, the last panel. Uh, but Lois, how, has, um, how much has... Uh, or, or the sequential improvement of this market from the product space into the crude tanker space? What's, uh, what's been going on so far? Well, you know, as I'm sure most of the audience is already aware, you know, the middle of the crude space is also a product space, right? So your LR1s and your LR2s are, you know, going to be carrying clean products or crude, you know, depending upon the um, strength of the market. So, you know, I think with... Um, you know, certainly the LR1s and LR2s just, you know, really taking off. You know, you also saw a lot of strength in, you know, the middle of the crude fleet, which was also enhanced, particularly on the Aframaxis, by, you know, the Russian barrels being diverted. And then I would say, you know, some of the crude movements that's following on, you know, the crude price has been very backwardated, but some of that has come in and narrowed a bit. So you're seeing the Vs playing more of a market out of the U.S. Gulf where, you know, uh, X 
export, crude exports out of the U.S. Gulf have been averaging over 3.5 million barrels a day, you know, anticipating going up to 4 million barrels a day. And, you know, the United States has been selling the SPR barrels, right? So, you know, now we're down to below 430 million barrels in the SPR, right? So um, a lot of those, uh, you know, barrels uh, have been exported, and it has definitely helped in the crude markets. So I think all of that, and, and then I guess another point that I would add is, you know, most of the recovery in the markets has been in OECD, which is highly unusual, right? You know, normally we see all the growth in non-OECD, right? So I think now we're starting to see emerging markets catching up um, with China finally, you know, uh, coming out of some of their lockdowns and um, starting to increase. They, they came out with some more product export quotas. So, you know, that tends to pull on the, the crude part of the barrel. Yeah, thank you. Um, and then, uh, Harris, um, um, there's been some talk about the, the war uh, and the disruptions following in the wake of the war. Um, how much has that really explained what we've seen so far? Because I guess the at least what we're thinking is that a lot of the actual embargoes that are going to come into place uh, and reshuffle a lot more crude and product flows than before uh, are yet in front of us. So, so I mean, how, how has that dynamic actually worked out in your view? Yep. Uh, it's an, an, an unfortunate situation for, uh, obviously, for, for, uh, you know, for the world, for the civilized community, but... Uh, uh, as it always happens, uh, shipping stands to benefit from uh, such turbulence uh, uh, that uh, occurs internationally. Uh, obviously, we were, and as, as, as uh, Bob mentioned earlier, we were uh, getting out of the woods uh, just before the war started. Uh, the market was tightening. We were uh, in the process of seeing uh, rates across uh, all sectors uh, increasing, uh, both in, uh, in, uh, on the crude and, and uh, products. Uh, low uh, order book, uh, high, or we were seeing uh, some accelerated uh, um, uh, scrapping, uh, scrapping levels at $600 incentivized owners to, to, uh, to divest from their older vessels. Uh, so everything was shaping up for, uh, for a good market, and then the war came, and uh, boom, it, kind of, it skyrocketed like a rocket. It, 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 it's uh, what I call a good market on steroids. So effectively, the war... Uh, with the trading patterns changing and elongating the routes, uh, Europe uh, decreasing its imports from, uh, from Russia and uh, having to, uh, uh, to seek alternatives from, uh, you know, from the U.S. The U.S. is exporting uh, 500, uh, 5 million barrels uh, uh, per day, uh, almost double uh, a few years from, what, from the levels of, of uh, a few years back. Uh, from uh, imports from Brazil, from the Middle East, long-haul routes, uh, and, uh, and uh, uh, Europe effectively by decreasing its dependency uh, from, uh, from Russia on its crude imports, uh, accelerated this trend. And I think it's a ton-mile demand uh, at, this, uh, at this juncture, and uh, it will further accelerate as the war goes on. Uh, funnily enough, even if the war stops tomorrow, uh, nothing of, of that uh, uh, will uh, of that structural uh, change will uh, will um, uh, will change to to, the, to to what we had seen prior the war. Uh, this is a fundamental shift uh, in uh, in, um, in the international relations. Uh, and as long as you know the, the cer a certain leadership remains in Russia, we will not see anything. 
a change in that effect. So uh, European dependency, the Western world dependency from uh, you know the Russian uh, uh, crude will will continue. And uh, from what we saw and heard earlier, with you know the cap on uh, on uh, on Russian uh, crude um, uh, on, on the crude prices, uh, could further you know uh, boost, if you like, the market. Uh, so well, well, well. Uh, <laughs> Welcome, Hugo. Thank you for uh, running from the airport to here. Perfect. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. so everything is shaping up uh, to, uh, you know, to work, uh, to be very beneficial for the tankers uh, for the long run. It's, it will not be kind of a one-hit wonder, one wonder, as uh, was the case. We had so many false starts over the last couple of years. So things are, are shaping up uh, to be very, 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 very positive for the tanker market and the yeah. crude, which is following, uh, uh, following the, the, the product sector. One thing I'll add is on the immediate situation we just discussed, this, this situation a few months ago, the immediate situation, and you look into the future, um, storage is at an all-time low, both on the, on the uh, clean and, and the uh, dirty side, and, mm -hmm. as well as the SPR in the States. So uh, we look forward, and, you know, by breed, we're an optimistic group as ship owners, but, you know, I've never seen so much enthusiasm. And contrary to what Robert Bugby said before, he said the room isn't full yet. I was in Norway last week, and the rooms were full. They were, they were overflowing. So there's certainly optimism there. Hmm. And uh, so, so I, guess, I guess what I'm getting at is a bit the, um, the self-sanctioning part of everything that's been going on with the war in Ukraine. And uh, it might be a touchy subject, but, uh, but on the panel, um, how much or are any of you have been exposed recently to any uh, Russian volumes uh, being traded? Um, no. I mean, no. International seaways, we're not, we're not loading Russia. I, I don't know about... You know, at, at, at Sackles Harrier. Uh, we had some uh, Russian cargoes in the early days that were contracted or pre-contracted uh, prior to the war that uh, we had to, uh, you know, honor the contract. But uh, uh, anything we do, it's absolutely, uh, you know, uh, non-Russian uh, uh, trade. Yeah. yeah, the same. The day after the war started, we just stopped. Yeah. Anyway, I think most of the people, uh, certainly international, it's crazy. Yeah, the, the mic. Is that that's working. You have to press the button. Anyway, I'm stealing his mic. Uh, no, I was saying that there's a lot of scrutiny from uh, the banking world and P&I clubs. So um, even if someone was tempted to do it, uh, there would, be, would have been a lot of questions. And so most of us, because we are listed companies, we certainly don't touch it. But there's also a lot of people that are not touching it simply because it's too much trouble. Yeah. Well, and, and, you know, it's repetitive. I mean, I can attest, Robert, you called me the day after the war. And you were unequivocal in your position. I mean, we consulted with the board, and, you know, I think there's a lot of wise voices there. And they were like, you know, and that's the first time in 30 years that I've ever seen self-sanctioning. Yeah, and, and it was legal to trade. It still is. And yeah. we're, we're, we all have, we have private equity investors across the board, and we're all fiduciaries. And we had a discussion internally. Yes, it's legal. What's our responsibility? You know, there's... There's more than just an E in the ESG. Um, and all the PE uh, investors said, don't do it, which we didn't want to do anyway. Actually, my wife told me, don't come home if you're going to trade with Russia. <laughs> <laughs> so I was relieved, I think, when they said they didn't want to trade. 
But it's at that point that you call Lois. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so we could switch that then, then over to you, Hugo. Uh, for, so, so I guess some of, some of the strengths that we've seen so far definitely from the, the implications of the war, but as I said, the, the embargo is still yet to come. Um, and uh, so what would be your quick take on the potential to see? It's 5th of uh, December for crude and 5th of uh, February for, for products, oil products into Europe. Um, what will be the net effect of that uh, into a seasonally very strong winter as well? Yeah, undeniably, this looks very, very good. Yeah, it's at least another million that needs to be displaced, and it's going to be displaced on a long, longer ton mile. So what you've seen so far is very positive. What you've yet to see is even better. Hmm. And um, to meet this, uh, very few vessels being delivered. So... Um, the, the next question is really on the, the order book as it looks today. Um, given, given the low order book now, it's below, I think, 5% of the fleet uh, over the next few years. What is, uh, Harris, what, what's the, what's the, um, how far ahead would you have to look in order to get any capacity to the fleet today? Well, most of the yards are, uh, are full uh, from prior orders on, uh, on, the, on the containers and uh, LNG and uh, obviously on, uh, on the dry bulk. Uh, tankers, no one was ordering, uh, primarily for, uh, you know, uh, the big question mark on what kind of vessel to build. Uh, are you going to build dual fuel? Dual fuel what? Dual fuel LNG? Dual fuel methanol? Dual fuel, you know, hybrid? Whatever, you know, uh, was the alternative. So it's this ongoing debate that, in a way, puts uh, uh, pull the brakes in uh, in overordering. Uh, obviously, we were in an environment of uh, you know a, a very soft or relatively soft market, so that didn't uh, quite uh, uh, incentivize owners to uh, to build. Finance was tight, um, so uh, uh, in in a way that uh, allowed uh, uh, the tanker market to breathe. Because, uh, as, as you may recall, historically the tanker market was always a victim of uh, of uh, high, uh, of very heavy high ordering. Uh, thank God, because of limited capacity and whatever was available has been uh, taken over. We're in this uh, situation today that we haven't seen for probably 30 years, uh, probably under 5% order book when just a few years back we thought the 10% order book was low. Uh, so, you know, it takes a couple of years to build a vessel. So even if all of us and all uh, tanker owners in the world decided to build today and kind of, uh, you know, and, and potentially create uh, uh, an overbuilding, uh, it's not possible for that to happen. It's, mm. it's just not the case. So we are in this situation in, in a very tight market that... Uh, in an increasing, improving uh, global oil demand. Uh, so we could potentially be faced with a negative fleet growth. Uh, we could uh, be in a situation where not enough vessels uh, will be around to carry the available, the, 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 the needed cargoes. Mm. And as you can appreciate, that will mean, uh, that will translate to, rock, to, to, uh, to a rate skyrocketing. So uh, it's, uh, you know, it's very tangible. I mean, we know that at least for the next couple of years, as it is, the market will, uh, will uh, remain very strong. Mm. Obviously, it will go, you know, uh, it will be a roller coaster drive, but within very healthy uh, parameters, lows oh, and highs. Mm. 
What about for, for international seaways when you consider the... Because I guess the, the opportunity here is usually either a new build, which takes time and costs a lot, versus uh, an existing vessel. Um, and uh, as that is the most, most attractive option, how do you weigh sort of the valuations today compared to where the new building prices are? Yeah, well, you know... Um I think it was mentioned earlier, you know, you're talking about, you know, vessel values. So, you know, you're, you know, where a year ago and, you know, the market was atrocious and as bad as I've ever seen, you know, now you're starting to shape up with high utilization and, you know, your asset values are ticking up every month and you're starting to come into, you know, the product carriers are definitely above mid-cycle valuations. You know, you're starting to see the crude get there now. So, you know, the question is going to be, um, you know, we look at everything from a perspective of, okay, you know, we have, you know, 78 tankers uh, on the water, and then how do we optimize each of those? And I think, you know, just to build on, you know, one of Harris's points, you know, as we have our EEXI score, and then every year you're going to have your, your grade, and, you know, everybody wants an A or a B, nobody wants a C, a D, or an E, and all of this becomes much more complex, you know, if you're looking at a time charter and you're going to put that vessel out for three years, all of a sudden you're asking your counterparty at the oil companies to, hey, well, when you give me that ship back, if I gave it to you as a B, I don't want that ship back in three years as a D. And they're like, you know, what? You know, so you have this dichotomy between the very top, like, of the shells and the exons where the awareness level and driving things is very high, and then now it's coming from the spot desk and the chartering desk because all of this kind of has to meet in the middle, and it will change behavior. And, you know, we'll have to work together with the oil companies, and, you know, if they have, let's say, 30 MRs within their fleet, I think you know, the charters are going to have to look at how are they trading those ships. And, you know, the calculation, if you are sitting in ballast or you're sitting there laden waiting to get to berth, it kills your grade. And so all, all of this is emerging now. And, you know, we're all dealing with it every day as this is starting to sit down on people. And that's only going to drive more trading inefficiency because... Now you have an extra factor that you're considering on top of simply efficiently trading your tankers, right? So I think the soup is getting thicker, right? On your existing fleet, um, you know, then you're, then you're looking at the new buildings. And, you know, I think, you know, probably Hugo can tell us, you know, when you can get a new building. Um, but, you know, we have our three VLCCs that are dual fuel that are going to deliver in the first quarter of 23. And... We're feeling really good about the timing on that. And then, you know, I think for owners, to Harris's point, you know, new building prices are very elevated. So everybody's a little cautious. And perhaps if I may add to my prior point, uh, people tend to overlook something else, which is very important, probably, uh, if not more important than the order book. It's the vessel, uh, the fleet age. Uh, and today we talked yep. about, you know, the very low order book, like 4.55% at best, or at worst, uh, 5%. Uh, of the entire fleet, but don't forget that over 30% of the fleet, 33% to be precise, of the entire fleet today is over 15 years of age. That means that by the time those 5% gets delivered, the, the global fleet would we, we need to find, we need to replace the, those 33% vessels. So uh, 
it's, it's very, very possible that we could be faced with uh, the negative free growth of, over the next uh, few years. It's a massive gap between those older vessels and uh, what is coming in to replace them. Robert, I yeah. thought I'd ask you. I see, see you might have a comment. Uh, but uh, on the... Uh, I mean, in, in terms of these aged vessels or older vessels, um, which has been part of the Ridgebury story for some time, um, how, I mean, what's your preference today? Would you be a buyer or seller, considering everything yes. that's been touched on now? Um, we're owned by different... We, have, we do discrete... Uh, just different investments for different private equity groups. So we're not a public company. We don't have a holding company. We do... Um, investments for our partners and then at certain times when the market takes off we sell or we hold um, we traditionally buy older vessels 10 years and older and we have low financial leverage and high operating leverage that's our that's our uh, playbook and it seems to have worked okay so far um, uh, so we know a lot about the ships that are somewhat older I bought ships from my left side I bought ships from my right side and, uh, and a lot of people who are listed we bought from so we buy good tonnage and um, I took a banker out, a commercial banker out to Singapore to see an 18-year-old VL one time, and he was amazed at how great it looked. It was uh, bought from another public company who's not here today. And um, <laughs> All right, it was bought from Hugo. Uh, it was in great shape. But the, the astonishing thing is, for those of you who have not been on a ship that's well taken care of from a good owner that's 15, 16, 18 years old, is that they can last a long time if you put the money into them. We all fly on 30-year-old airplanes you know, the average car in the country is 12 and a half years old. So the assets do last if you put money into them. But we've been uh, not trained, but the financial incentive is to see them off at the age of 20. There's a huge group of ships, uh, 06, 07, 08, from the last boom that's hanging out there. And as Harris pointed out, they're coming up to 20 years soon. I mean, the oil has to move. The oil will move. And for all the reasons we discussed, the order book is, you know, it's not there. Um, I mean, I think the one hole is there are some probably slots that uh, for container ships that haven't been – the keel hasn't been laid yet that could turn over, but the numbers are not that big. Um, but uh, I don't have an answer. And ships over 20 years old are a different animal. And there are ships over 15 that shouldn't be on the water, but there are ships that are 20 that, that shouldn't be scrapped. So it varies, I guess, is the, the answer. On yeah, and the betting system works well. But mm. what doesn't work well – it does vary. What doesn't work well is – if you have a ship that is going to be scrapped at 20, then when she turns 15 or the last dry dock at 17 and a half or 18, you're discouraged from investing heavily into it. That's the big issue. Mm. I mean, historically, you make more money on older vessels, but unfortunately, unfortunately the industry is moving uh, away from the Trump kind of traditional Trump operations. Yeah, so the way, the way to earn a lot of money in shipping before was as low EV as possible and the same dollar per day rate, which you, which you could achieve to a large degree, at least on a sold asset. Right, I, mean, I could dump 10 million bucks into an older V, it'd be in great shape. But mm. I'm discouraged to do it when it's 18 because in two years it's going to the boneyard. Yeah. And you can do, put a lot of efficiencies into it. You know, I won't go through the whole list, but fuel efficiencies, you know, new angle, angle windlasses, new everything, and for you know, a lot cheaper than buying a new ship. Hmm. But it doesn't work in today's environment with oil companies will not charter them over 20 years old. And as Lois pointed out, you know, the new regulatory requirements for emissions discourage that also. Yeah. So then heading over to, to your now and, and Hugo, um, you've done uh, a lot of fleet rejuvenation recently. Um, what's your take on, on this sort of discussion, new versus old? I mean, I suppose that we look at the market uh, a little bit like everybody else, and uh, the, the supply side is always the main driver. What is 
the elements of the supply side, the number of ships on the water. Uh, obviously, you're looking at the new buildings. I think it's more speculative to try to forecast how many ships are going to leave. But to a certain extent, it doesn't matter when the order book is that thin. You have the ton miles, and we just spoke about it, and that's going up. So that is obviously reducing the supply. And then you have the utilization, which is an element of yeah, how many days uh, is your ship full and how many days is your ship empty if you're on the spot market. And that can vary with the speed. And the beauty of this part of the cycle, or the cycle that we are looking um, ahead of us, is that on all those elements, we have a high degree of control. There is nothing that is, I mean, very little that is being built and uh, very little capacity before uh, three years out. And yes, you will find niche. I mean, yeah, okay, we are always trying to find maybe the, the ship that, that can be delivered ahead of the winter 25, but I guarantee you that it's not easy. Um, you have all this regulatory environment that is kicking in in 23 and that will gradually uh, pick up and become more and more difficult for everyone, which means that people will need to take care of their vessel, will need to slow down, will need to retrofit, will need to take a lot of actions uh, around them, but that doesn't uh, increase the supply. And so we are, we are extremely positive. And uh, as far as a uh, new building is concerned, we would like to buy more, but there is nothing out there. And quite frankly, the price are becoming uh, very discouraging, be it on the second hand or be it on the, on the new building. Hmm. So fortunately, uh, I think many people on this panel did that. We, we purchased them or we, we put some orders last year when the price was still reasonable. And unless you find a distressed situation here and there and you're very close uh, to a yard, you're going to pay a hefty price and your break-even required over the next 20 years to justify that price is, is so high that it's, yeah, chances are you're not going to do it. Yeah, so um, we, we in DMB markets also uh, are positive and constructive on the outlook for tankers here. So I just, it seems that's the consensus view as well. Uh, so I just wanted to play devil's advocate for a second and ask what can go wrong. I mean, what I said on the analyst panel was one of the things I feared was that you aren't going to see volumes actually materialize if you have a very constrained uh, capex regime within the, the U.S. oil and gas production, for instance, you could put there are questions to spare capacity in the Middle East, etc. Um, what, what's your take on that? What could go wrong? Yeah, the, the, the two-year treasury is at 4.02 today. I think the 10 years at 3.5. Yeah. Uh, that's a 50-point gap. And I think 80% of the time there's an invert in the curve, there's a recession, and the bigger the inversion, the harder the recession. So, I mean, that could, that could give the market pause, but that's not going to happen in the next couple of months. No, and then you can say, I guess you're still on a recovery path, path post-COVID yeah. as well. So those two factors are partly working uh, each their direction. So uh, I guess what I'm struggling to see is really the, uh, the massive downside here, uh, unless there's any you know, black swan event that's, that's very hard to, to touch on. They're always out there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, so not, nothing else than that? No, I mean, I, I, I agree with Bob. You know, it's, you know, you're seeing those oil demand growth is a derivative of economic GDP growth, right? So, um, you, you know, we don't like to see that slowing down. Uh, but structurally, I think that, you know, all of that is there. It's never a straight line, right? So we, we may have some, you know, interruptions, but I, I think all the elements are there for a very hey, strong market. We, um We've been on these panels for a long time, and everything's priced in. 
and all the major changes in the market the past million years are things we could never have projected. I mean, we call it black swan, but there right. are events like a war, like a COVID, right. um, an oil disaster. I mean, it's things you don't see. Uh, we can't project. So. No, yes. I think it's important to recognize that everybody um, fears a little bit recessions, and that's totally normal. And, and uh, I've heard too many investors saying that, yeah, but the tankers is uh, recession-proof. And I think we need to be prudent. Having said that, um, there is one element that I like about this, uh, this, this market uh, and about a re- if a recession comes, and that's the fact that the fleet is aging. I think that a lot of ships will be kept for a little longer than 20 years. They will have to slow down. Okay, fair enough, but they will stay afloat because there will be a demand. It can, it can be also the illicit trade, and that uh, happens in Iran, that happens in Venezuela, and it's going to happen more and more in, in, uh, in Russia. Having said that, if you have a recession and that uh, puts a dent on uh, demand for oil, I think the first reflex that people will have is to go and scrub their ships because then it really doesn't make sense to keep them afloat. As long as the rates are very healthy, people will spend what they can spend, what is justified to spend, but if it's not healthy, then they, uh, they send it to the scrapyard and you have rebalancing of the fleet relatively quickly due to that mechanism. Mm-hmm. And I think it's very important. I mean, things uh, you know uh, could go wrong in the sense that you know uh, high energy prices, uh, a prolonged recession, uh, continuous lockdowns in China uh, could potentially slow the market down. But there will not be enough, uh, I think, to derail them just because of the fundamental, the structural changes that uh, that uh, we're seeing in the industry and the order book, the high. Uh, um, uh, the big gap between you know the the aged vessels over you know 15, 17, 20 years old uh, vis-à-vis the uh, the order book, uh, not enough to destabilize it. And don't forget that we're talking about this super booming market that we haven't seen for many many years uh, without really the support of China. China hasn't really That's played in, the, in, in, in in they haven't come into the fray at all. They are they have. Their net crude imports are like 10% lower than uh, what they were like a year ago. Uh, they still have the lockdowns, so they haven't really moved the market. They haven't really played uh, a, a role into this boom uh, that we're seeing. So the moment uh, uh, things become uh, you know, more streamlined in China, we're going to see and hopefully uh, you know, China will start importing again uh, oil, even from Russia. That's fine. That means that those vessels that will do the Russian-China trade will be preoccupied on, on that, and then the rest of us will do whatever is left. That's absolutely fine. And, uh, you know, even if the war stops tomorrow, nothing's going to change. I mean, unless, I don't know, Donald Trump becomes the president of, 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 of uh, Russia, nothing, you know, those, you know, mm structural dynamics, the changes, the new trading patterns will, uh, are, are here to stay. That's going to be a trade wins. <laughs> okay. uh, I'm glad you picked it up. <laughs> so uh, uh, looking, looking at the equities, I'd say equity valuations have, have been improving. Um, again, parallel to the, uh, uh, the energy sector uh, and maybe in the U.S., especially the shale players. Um, is this time different? I mean, if valuation gets to somewhere where you're above NAV and people are starting to value the cash flow potential, which undeniably can be substantial over the coming next years if this all comes to fruition. 
uh, is the capital discipline there uh, so that the, you know, is it a price to NAV case that we're seeing that people aren't investing in new builds or is it uh, that's causing this capital discipline or is it simply the, uh, the public markets who aren't allowing for, you know, investments as, as things are? I mean, it's, it's, it's a multitude of factors, right? So, you know, a, as an owner, you know, a tanker owner, you're looking at, and I do believe that, you know, um, oil demand growth will continue and largely will come from emerging markets east and, you know, a lot of supply is coming from the west, so that construct is very good for us. Um, on, on crude tankers, you know, as you look at it, you know, and... and Carrie spoke about it at lunch. You know, everyone is trying to understand, you know, okay, how am I, you know, what will my propulsion be? You know, what am I going to be carrying? What is the life of my asset? And I, I think all of that complexity, I'm, I, I'm not fond of saying this time is different, <laughs> uh, but I, I think it, this time might be more complex for owners and a little more caution around, okay, I want to make sure that I don't have a stranded asset. Mm. Yeah, I guess the, uh, and I don't know what the panelists view on that, but one of the major changes now compared to perhaps before is that at some point in time, uh, hard to say when, but peak oil demand might be somewhere around the corner. And considering you're ordering assets to live another 20 years, etc., like you touched on, Lois, on uh, uh, stranded assets. just uh, what would your take be on the dynamic in an industry that switches a bit to the opposite direction? Because you can say the longevity of upcycles and shipping over time have usually been driven by the time it takes to get a new build delivered. That's partly the reason why, you're, why we're so positive to the sector today, right? The long lead time for delivery. Um, and that's fine and well when demand is headed upward, uh, but potentially when it's headed downward, what sort of a shipping market would, uh, would tanker shipping be then? I'll open the floor to whoever wants to, to comment. But, uh, of course, when you buy an asset, when you order an asset and it's being built for you, uh, it will, it's supposed to last 20 years, maybe a little bit longer, maybe a little bit shorter, depending on what happens towards the end of the life of the, of the asset. But let's not forget that we are all operating wasting assets. What does that mean? It means that every year you're supposed to see a lot of assets going uh, off, going to the recycling yards. So um, building uh, a couple of ships now that will last 20 years is not really risky because peak oil doesn't mean that the minute after peak oil you no longer transport oil. It only means that you have reached the peak and from there on you gradually go down. And I cannot imagine uh, a sort of a cliff event where uh, suddenly you're losing uh, 10, 15, 20% of oil demand uh, every year. Which would be problematic to uh, to cope with the fleet. I think what we're going to see is a gradual decline, and the gradual decline will match the natural lifetime of the fleet. Yeah, peak coal was like six years ago, and now we're back up there again. And everyone thinks, I think, in my head, coal's dead, but it's not. And as like Hugo said, if unless oil is going to go down five percent a year, which is the natural depreciation of a tanker, you know, which is a phenomenal that's a number, that's a lot. Then the new assets should be able to age out. Yeah, but the question—I I guess um, we're running a bit short in time. But I guess what I'm uh, what I'm alluding to is the dynamic that uh, declining uh, demand over time might not lead to the same type of super cycles that you've seen in a long time, which could perhaps be a limiting factor. It, it, I don't know. I, I would I would 
strongly disagree. I think that we're going to see <laughs> okay. many more times because, of course, it's not going to be a perfect match between mm. the decline of oil and the decline of the fleet. No. And those mismatch are going to provoke very interesting peak times in terms of uh, day rates. Mm. And, okay. you know, interestingly, I mean, and, and it may slow down a little bit, you know, because of the recessionary pressures, right? But, you know, IEA has 2.2 million barrels a day of oil demand growth in 2023. You know, uh, prior to COVID and, you know, a million and a half barrels a day was a huge growth rate, right? So, you know, we're talking about a declining market and, you know, the, the dynamics are such that, you know, we're still looking at resumption of growth, right, some of it post-COVID, and overall growth, and you're talking about an above-trend line oil demand growth in 2023. So, you know, we're not there yet. No, no. And there's no, there, I mean, there's no one-to-one either on oil demand and transportation demand, right, which could be something that extends far beyond uh, oil demand in, in aggregate. Um, okay, we have 19 seconds left, so I, I don't know if anyone wants to, to end on a high note, um, or else I'll, uh, I'll say... <laughs> the whole panel's been a high note, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I, think we can, I think we can conclude that, uh, that things are definitely looking good, and we're looking forward to all the cash flows that are going to run into, uh, into the ship owners' pockets and tankers in the, the quarters to come. Thanks so much to the panel and to the audience for... Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you.